Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. After hearing all the stories about Carabelle and how Anna Wakey had a hotel and marina built by the students, I decided I had to see this for myself. I booked myself a room at the Moorings of Carabelle, the hotel built by Anna Wakey, which is still in operation, and headed down to Carabelle. I just got into Carabelle after a quite hairy drive down a two-lane Florida highway in pouring rain. I've checked in and I'm at the Moorings at Carabelle Hotel and Marina. This is the same hotel and the same marina that those boys built. So I'm gonna go out and speak with some locals and see what I can't find out about the town of Carabelle. My first stop was to visit the Carabelle History Museum, a small local shrine to the fishing town of Carabelle. I figured surely they had to know about Anawiki's history in the area. We really have taken on the notion of gateway to the Gulf to go fishing, that, that Fishing charters and ecotourism have gotten really big here. This is Tamara Allen. She runs the History of Carabelle Museum. For a small town with no red light, it has an awful lot of history, dating back to the native Seminole tribe and Civil War era battles. I asked Tamara what she knew about Anna Wakey. To my surprise, it was very little. We had been coming here since the 80s. We were staying at the moorings. That was our place to stay. And we were told we were the first, like, official people to stay in the motel of the moorings back in the late 80s. And I just heard it was um, like a rehab place for delinquent kids. And so at the time, I heard about the fact that it had been part of, of Anna Wakey, but I didn't know what that meant. Because I'd say to people, well, what happened? And they wouldn't tell me. It's a big rabbit hole. What Tamara did know was that the boys at the Anawakee South Campus were a part of the community, going to local schools and even churches. These children were students at the facility, but they all went to high school with other kids. So they made friends here with other kids. I do know that a lot of the kids went to either 
the Baptists or the Methodist church. People knew him in the community. And occasionally they would go, a group of them would go to a townsperson and say, we have to leave that place. Do you have anywhere we could stay? Or they would try to run away. They wanted to stay in school. They wanted to just have a normal life here, but they didn't want to be in the program. And some of the kids ended up living here, marrying local girls. Since I had initially contacted Tamara, she had reached out to some people she knew in the area who may have more insight into what went on at Anawaki. Several people said that a lot of the staff that worked there were evil types of people, that they abused the children and particularly did things like just took a perfectly healthy child and deliberately broke their arm or their leg if they were misbehaving. I tried to see if Tamara may be able to connect me with someone who may have had a closer connection to the school I could speak with. I started talking to people that I thought might have a historical perspective. And then they were reluctant to talk about it, which piqued my interest, I must say. And then I actually had somebody say to me, I don't want to talk to that guy because I might end up dead. They, they wouldn't even tell me what they were talking about. And I, I said, help me understand that comment. I don't know what that means. He said, well, a lot of people talked to folks and they ended up dead. They know that Petter had very high connections way up in government in Florida and Georgia. Nobody that I've found that works there wants to talk to you because they are afraid they'll end up dead. Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis Petter? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid in a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Anawaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Anawaki. I quickly realized it may be tougher than I originally thought to speak with some locals about Anawaki. Luckily, I managed to find a few people scattered throughout the town who were willing to tell me what they remembered. I guess I first heard about it when they started coming to our school I must have been sixth or seventh grade when they first started coming to school. When I went to school with them, I was Kathy Millinder, and I graduated with probably 10 or 15 of the guys from Anawaki. I'm still good friends with a lot of them that went to Anawaki that I graduated high school with. I stay in contact. I married one right out of high school. Just a, a lot of good friendships that have remained over 50 years now. We interacted with them regularly on, uh, through church. I mean, that's, you know, that's what they did. They'd bring, they'd bring them to church. Actually, I think my daughter might have dated one of them for a little bit there. I mean, my, not my daughter, but my sister, sister my, my baby sister. These kids would come in, I mean, they had their white shirts on, ties. They were just presented nice kids, good kids. They're learning, you know, they're learning how to, to better themselves. And they were very polite and everything, but I think they're just happy to get get out of the the environment that they were in. And we had no clue of it. We had no really clue of it. Back then, we never heard about it, you know. No, we didn't. We, didn't. we had no clue. Right. No, no idea. I went to see what the former grounds of the Inawaki Work Camp, or Landside as it was known, looked like today. The St. James Bay Golf Course currently resides there. What was once untouched wildlife is now a subdivision of sorts, surrounding the course. I went to eat at its resident grill. It's here where I heard a harrowing story from my waitress regarding Anawaki. My knowledge is secondhand from a friend of my father's. I knew of one incident in particular where a police officer who was working in some capacity um, at the facility took a young boy out into uh, the, a wooded area 
a hunter was there. Um, he didn't know the hunter was there, but the hunter observed him having sex with the, with the boy. Was this voluntary from your understanding? It was not. It seemed to be more of a punishment type situation. Surprisingly, this story sounded familiar. In fact, it showed that someone may have actually witnessed one of the worst stories I heard in all of my interviews. My name is Mark. My number was B1474. I attended Anawake from 1984, March 21st to be exact, to about March 21st, 1986. At the time, I was 15 years old. My background before I went into Anawake, I came from an abusive household. Mom tried her best. Dad was uh, very violent. Looking back on it now, there's just a lot of um, negative talk, a lot of um, destructive behavior. I was just lost, very depressed. And uh, after trying to commit suicide a couple of times, just not understanding myself or my emotions or who I was, I, um, they, they put me away in a adolescent psychiatric unit for emotionally disturbed children. I was at South Campus. That was my primary campus. Obviously, we all go through ENO in Douglasville, which is Central Campus. And I was there twice. Uh, first time when I was admitted, and, and then the second time after uh, an incident happened. Mark says that during his time in Carabelle, that Anawake had once again gotten itself in the good graces with the local government, a fact that would only hide what was going on behind the scenes. We were told that we were going to do a dance. It was my first dance. Anawake had two dances, spring and fall. And they had said that Governor Bob Graham and his daughter was coming. I heard about that. I was real impressed that the governor's daughter was coming to Anawake for the dance. Mark says that Anawake's ties with Florida Governor Bob Graham were so close as to even send boys to his home to do work. We went up there, and I don't think it was the governor's mansion that we went to. I believe it was his personal property because it seemed like a regular home. We went up and just kind of cleaned the flower beds and trimmed hedges. It seemed like pretty much all day. We had a good time. There was a pool there. A couple of staff members were there. Even with such close ties to local government, the abuse at the Anawake South Campus was just as bad, if not worse, than in Douglasville. On many occasions, I personally witnessed at least a good handful maybe a dozen different times that staff members either physically abused, sexually abused, or just verbally abused students, group members. Mark shared a personal story with me. Fair warning, it's pretty rough to listen to. You may want to skip ahead if that's too much for you. It came to me kind of as a shock. I'd never seen anything like that. I never was traumatized by seeing it until I walked back to my first campsite. I was able to walk back with a pass, uh, a three by five card. I had to pick up something that I left on campus. The staff member was a new staff member. He sent me back to the campsite and uh, I heard somebody crying and it kind of scared me because I didn't know what to do. So I just ran up into the platform tent and one of my group members was getting basically raped by a staff member, by a unit supervisor. I didn't know this person at first. I mean, I knew my group member, but I didn't know the staff member. And I was just so shocked to see two people doing that. I've never seen anything like that. Never thought of anything like that. So I just ran off. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I didn't even, I don't remember what I had to go back and get, but I just ran and I ran back and my heart was going a hundred miles an hour. 
and I wanted to tell the new staff member, but I knew it wasn't the right thing to tell him. I, I, I didn't trust this person. So I asked him if I could go to the clinic. Next thing I know, I'm in the clinic. I tell one of the nurses and I let her know what was going on. First, I asked her if I could speak to her and I talked to her and I told her this has happened. I don't know what to do. I need some help. Can you call the police? What do we do? And she said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. The police already know about it. You're gonna be fine. Everything's gonna be okay. Just go back to your group. Don't say anything to anybody and everything will be fine. Three days later, I'm walking back by myself again and uh, the same group leader sent me back to the campsite and two men stepped off of the trail, grabbed me and then Mr. Phillips, who was head of security, he's standing in front of me and he smacks my face, open hand smacks my face and anyone can tell you Mr. Phillips was very big, he was very strong and it just dazed me. And the next thing I know, I'm on the ground and Mr. Phillips has kind of got his knee in the back of my head between my shoulder blades and they pulled my pants down and both of the other staff members raped me. And I just remember I couldn't breathe. It's funny because even today I can almost taste the sand. I can almost smell it because everything's sandy in Florida. And after that, I just, I guess I passed out or I, I, I'm not sure what happened. Maybe I'm blocking it somewhere. But the next thing I remember was waking up in the back of one of our passenger vans that they used to transport us. We were in, I think it was some small town in Georgia. And I woke up and I had a really bad headache and my butt itched and I couldn't figure out, it was like I had tape on my butt cheeks and my butt cheeks were taped together really super tight for some reason and i was wearing one of those anawakey green eno robes and i had a medical bracelet on like you get when you go to the hospital and i kept on wanting to scratch my backside and and there was tape there and i couldn't figure out what it was and i was confused why i was in a van and one of the staff members, there was two people driving, or one person driving, the other one passenger. And then the, another person was sitting a couple seats ahead of me and I was sitting all the way in the back. And he said, Mark, you're fine. Cause I started kind of freaking out. And he goes, um, he goes, you, you tried to hurt yourself. And I knew that was a bunch of shit because <laughs> I didn't try to hurt myself. Um, and I became scared all over again. And he said, uh, can we, we're going to stop at McDonald's. Would you like something to eat? And I was starving. I was like, sure. Yeah. Then I got to ENO, um, went to a doctor, uh, in the clinic of ENO and they looked at me and, uh, I had a staple in my anus. They stapled it in some small stitches. I had, had some gauze that I had to change and they gave me a whole bunch of stuff. They were really super nice this time when I went to ENO. Never got the robe thrown at me. Uh, pretty much got to be able to walk in and out of my room whenever I wanted. I had a little bit more privileges than the new guys getting there. But they kept on telling me that I tried to commit suicide. And I was trying to tell another of the staff members and, you know, no, that's not what happened to me. This happened to me. He told me, he pulled me off the side and uh, took me back into the clinic area. And he told me, you don't want to talk about this. You don't want to say anything about this. They will keep hurting you. And your parents will be notified. And you will never basically win this battle that you're trying to fight. And he just told me to go back and keep my mouth shut. And if anybody approached me, just tell them that I wasn't interested and that I had spoke to that staff member and to mention his name. And then by mentioning his name, that was kind of a key word that they would leave me alone. Mark says that after this traumatic experience, he never spoke to his parents about what they were told by the staff of Anawaki 
until years later. Believe it or not, my parents were told that I had tried to commit suicide again, anally. And I didn't know this until probably five years ago. I knew they were told something and we just didn't talk about it. It was just one of those things. My mom kind of buried her head in the sand with a lot of stuff. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After hearing Mark's heartbreaking story, I found I kept hearing the same name of the counselor who partook in his abuse, Jim Phillips. Mr. Phillips was a big man. He was a big guy. He was probably, I'm going to say 300 pounds. If you didn't know him, you think he would have a kind heart. He would put himself like he'd be willing to help you. And, and, you know, in a weird way, he would. He was a church-going guy, or claimed to be. It's funny how that works. And he also was involved with the sheriff department down in Carabelle, Florida, which is where I know Carabelle Police Department at the time in the 80s was dirty as shit, too. You can't tell me they didn't know about this. This is David Wacker. He was a patient at Anawakee South in Carabelle. Mr. Phillips was there for the intimidation purpose. He was the intimidation guy. He come, I remember one of the boys had done something or had gotten in a fight. And next time I saw him after him visiting Mr. Phillips, he had more bruises and the black eyes and shaking than I've ever seen on another human being in my life before. You did not mess with that man. This man was so strong. No lie. I've seen this man lift the back of a Greyhound bus to change a tire. 
you did not argue with this man, if you argue with him, if you got on his wrong side, he would put you through a concrete wall in a heartbeat and you wouldn't know what hit you. David was a victim of the sexual abuse taking place on the Carabelle campus. He claims that there may have been some type of exchange in return for access to the boys taking place. This is how he recalls the night his abuser took him to what he believed was an auctioning off of the boys. Woke up. I actually felt him get off the bed. I thought he was going out to take a piss. And then when he reached down and grabbed me, of course, here I thought, here, well, here we go again. Instead, told me, come with him. So I said, okay. And of course, I got up, threw my shoes on, I followed him out the door. Next thing I know, I know we're crossing over the creek, but for some reason it wasn't over the bridge, it was somewhere else. And we were able to cross over. I was unaware of it at the time. We ended up behind the tool shed that we had there. There was like another door in the back, but it wasn't visible to just the eye. You had to either slide or move something out of the way. He opened the door, told me to come in. I came in. It was behind the tool shed. I remember him sliding a door off to the right, like you would a screen door or a glass door. And then, but it wasn't glass, it was wood. And then I followed him in there and it opened up to another, like the size of a master bedroom. Chairs, a two-seated sofa, stuff like that. And then I was, I turned around, I had to face the wall. Everything else I was, I was listening to, voices. But I recognized the voices. I knew Mr. Brown was in there. I knew Mr. Phillips was in there, and I already knew Mr. Fennell was in there because he was the one that escorted me there. They're debating back and forth to others what they, who, which, which I, I'm assuming which child they want, who they want, what they want to do. It's like I said, at that time, I, I'm, I'm facing a wall. I'm not, actually, I'm trying to, I remember trying to look and see who's beside me to my left and my right. All you hear is bags and please and, you know, don't. The sounds. They haunt you too. Not just the experiences, but the sounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm facing the wall. There was carpet on the wall, and I was picking at it because that's what I did. I tried to zone out. You try to block everything. When you're that young and you're facing guys twice your size, you don't argue. You don't ask questions. You just do as you're told. I was probably there maybe 15, 20, maybe even 30 minutes. Then Mr. Fennell walks me out. And then we get back to the cabin, and then I went back in and got my bed, faced the wall, pulled the sheets over me as tight as I fucking could, and I just, if you try to forget, but you never do. Due to some luck while in Carabelle, I was finally able to connect with someone who worked at the Inawakee South Campus. My name is Ron Doyle. I worked in the mental health center in Tallahassee, and one of the psychiatrists there also worked down here and suggested to me that this, when I was finishing up my master's degree, that this would be a good place for me to work. And so I came down and interviewed and was hired as a counselor. This was in 1980. Ron came to visit me at the Moorings Hotel, which he helped build with the patients. It was a mixed bag. I really loved working with the boys. I mean, these were kids who needed a lot of help, and, and it was an opportunity for me to learn and practice my counseling skills. But there were a lot of things that were difficult. I worked a 130-hour work week, basically. I had a day and a half off a week. The rest of the time, I was on duty. I lived with the boys in, in the cabins, and it was intensive work. I asked Ron if he thought it was normal for the boys to be working on buildings, such as the hotel we were currently in. At the time, I did, yes, because the labor that they were doing was teaching them skills. It was providing structures that they were actually using and benefiting from, uh, except for this here at the moorings, which was a different thing, but at the time, we didn't know that. We thought we were building it for their use and that the motel part would be used for parents to stay when they came to visit campus. It was used to that to some degree, but I think for the most part, it was used for as a for-profit motel. I think at this point, and his employee and, and mine at that time, the sexual abuse was happening more away from campus in Mexico. This is Melinda, Ron's wife. She's originally from Carabelle and ended up working there when she met Ron. 
she and her friend came along with Ron to talk to me about Anawaki South. She says that Lewis Petter had begun taking boys from Anawaki to Mexico for a yearly trip, where they would be an even less watchful eye than there would be stateside. I think that he figured out people were on to him, and so there became a chosen group, and I did that in air quotes, to accompany them to Mexico. It was supposed to be this big privileged trip. Every year, every summer, Dr. Petter would lead a group on a trip to Mexico, and summer trips were a big thing in, in the program, you know, that they would be considered as a reward for the kids doing well and, and earning opportunities and making progress. And so groups would plan like a, a river trip or something. Uh, but this Mexico trip was a big thing, and, and the kids who went on it were hand-selected by Dr. Petter. I was invited to go. Dr. Petter asked me personally to go on the trip, and I didn't really want to go. I had heard enough things about it to make me leery of it. And so I told Dr. Petter, uh, I, I don't feel like I can go because I need to be here to help my groups. He wasn't used to people telling him no that worked for him. So that put me on his kind of bad list. I heard things about kids being physically abused. Um, I heard things about kids being taken to brothels to help them become a man. Andrew was a former patient of Anna Wakey, who was asked to attend the annual Mexico trip. He said Dr. Petter reached out to him personally about attending right before he was about to reach his termination. What Anna Wakey would call when you had completed your time at the facility and were ready to leave and return home. They had some kind of policy there, which I have since been told that this was just a policy that was total ludicrous and not really enforceable, but they would always enforce this on you. They said, well, if you turn 18 and you want to leave, you got to do five days in that E&O place that we had discussed earlier in this conversation. And I, um, I said, whatever, I'll do five days and then I'm leaving. And so I'm doing the five days and I'm in there for like about a day and Petter comes back, Dr. Petter, he comes back. He says, you know, well, Andy or Andrew, I didn't want you to leave. You know, I want you to finish the program and then enjoy your time here. I, um, you know, we do these Mexico trips once a year and I was planning on taking in. This would have been in, in April. And so he said, I wanted you to go to Mexico with us this on this next Mexico trip in 1983, which would have been the summer of 83. And I, um, I'm like, well, and I'd heard rumors about what goes on on these Mexico trips. And I thought about it for a few minutes there with him sitting there with me. And he had his chauffeur there with him, um, a guy named Carl Moore. And um, we uh, talked for a little bit longer. And then I said, all right, I will, um, I will go to Mexico with you. And that will that'll be okay, I'll go. And Petter said, good. And so he said, um, walk on out of the sea, you know. Here's Carl Moore and what he remembers about the Mexico trips. Every group had a chance to take a trip every year. It would actually raise money to take their trips and it would have to be planned. And uh, we did canoe trips, ski trips. The, the big trip to get to go on was the Mexico trip. And we would take three groups down to Mexico for almost three months. It seems like we we're probably uh, somewhere between uh, 10 and 12 weeks, something like that. Um, but we would, we would cover the uh, um, entire country of Mexico most of the time. It was a big deal for uh, the kids to get selected to do that. It was a pretty amazing trip. Traveling like that is just an amazing way. To, you know, we would t we took the vans and trailers, and we would camp out of the trailers. I mean, we would tent camp, but we kept all our food and clothes and stuff in the trailers. We'd leave Atlanta, get to uh, stop at Bourbon Street, go through Bourbon Street, um, get back on the road, camp probably somewhere in Louisiana or Texas, and then cross the border and. Uh, Brownsville, Texas, going into Mexico. It was just uh, just amazing way to, to see that part of the United States. But then we cross into Mexico, it was like a magical thing. 
We would drive down through the mountains. We would always stop at a place we called El Salto Falls, which was, uh, I think it was kind of like a honeymoon resort for people in Mexico, but it, it was, uh, you know, thatched huts and this just amazing waterfall with the river and uh, this blue water that was just, it was like something out of a, it was magical. And we would uh, drive through the Thomas and Charlie Mountains, which were like nothing that any of us had ever seen. And people farmed the sides of these mountains and it was just spectacular uh, greenery and, and terrifying roads. <laughs> through the mountains and our destination was typically we would go down to central Mexico, Pachuca in the state of Hidalgo. It was kind of a small miracle that we were able to do that without you know, major incident. If you told me right now to, to put together a group of 36 kids and six or eight staff members and take them down to Mexico for eight to 12 weeks, I'd say you gotta be kidding. But we did stuff like that, and it's a kind of a, I mean, there were, there were wonderful things about it, and there are questionable and, and uh, terrible things about it. Former patient Andrew says that Petter's connections had even reached the town of Pachuco, Mexico. The main place where Petter liked to go in Mexico was a town called Pachuca, which was near now about about an hour away from Mexico City. And um, I, I was amazed at, with the kind of connections and stuff that he had in this little town called Pachuca. But there would be parties and, you know, I could, you know, that would be held at private residences, for example, inside this, you know, town of Pachuca. And there were I could tell that these people were, you know, up, upper middle class, I guess, so to speak. And, uh, you know, a lot of gifts would be exchanged between Petter and these um, and these Mexican upper class families. I mean, these Mexican upper class families had money. I mean, I could tell that nice houses and stuff like that. At one point in time, I know Petter was given like some kind of antique pistol and as a sign of friendship and Petter's giving them like brand new TVs that we, you know, because we would pull these trailers to Mexico and we would have these TVs buried in the bottom of these trailers and stuff, you know. I mean, it was pretty crazy stuff. Another side note about Mexico. This is also where the story of George the Donkey began. I don't remember what year it was, but yeah, we were driving through, I think we were on a dirt road somewhere in the mountains of Mexico and this guy had had George with him and he was, he was tiny. I mean, he was, uh, you know, probably just weaned. And we stopped and decided it would be a good idea to have him. <laughs> so we bought him from the guy for 500 pesos, which was back then probably less than $5. And uh, he traveled around <laughs> Mexico with us. There was all kinds of wildlife in Mexico and stuff for sale. People driving back to the border would go through all kinds of animals for sale. And some of the kids would have bought like iguanas and things like that for pets. So we got the bright idea that we could bring George back into the U.S. with us. So we made a space in the trailer and put him in one of the trailers. We crossed the border at about four o'clock in the morning. And uh, I don't know, George, he could bray, he could make some noise. If he had started doing that, and it was uh, it was the funniest thing. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. We were all wide awake trying to look like we weren't wide awake, just praying that George didn't decide to let loose. And he didn't, and that's how we brought him into the country. Andrew says that the contraband brought back into the United States from these Mexico trips was not just limited to goods and even animals. There was like a couple on one of those Mexico trips. I think it was 1984. He brought back like two kids from Mexico. And um, I thought they were going into the Anawaki program. I don't know whatever happened to those kids. If they vanished, if they were abused and vanished or what. I have no idea because I never ever saw them again. But there was two Mexican kids, teenage kids. They were put into the group that Doc had personally and um, they were brought back to America um, and taken to Douglasville, Georgia. I never ever saw those kids again. Here's Carl Moore. We brought uh, people back from Mexico, which was a, 
a pretty big deal, I think. Some of them worked at Anawake, and uh, and we had relationships with people down there, and that uh, you know people expected to see us every year, and you know we would always take stuff down there for them. You know there was a lot of gift exchanging, and that was another one of the things that that uh, that he was good at. You know, he did this with with everybody that was important, and we would always buy jewelry down there, and you know that would end up in the hands of various people as gifts. Carl says that the possibility of Anawake moving into Mexico with another campus was something that was not out of the question at the time. I think we could have had a, a Mexico campus. We ended up buying a house down there. So I think the more was going to happen there or there was an opportunity. And I, and I didn't distinguish that from, from any other thing that you would do with the Anawake funds. You know, it was all the, the same thing to me. One aspect of the Mexico trip that was well-known among the patients at Anawake was an annual trip to a brothel, as Melinda Doyle had mentioned. In Pachuca, they had a, a strip on a hillside that was their red-light district, I guess you would call it. And on uh, several of the trips anyway, it, it, I mean, it was a regular thing. One of the big not-so-secret secrets was that, you know, that was part of the Mexico trip. But we would, you know, get everybody together and say, you know, it's kind of like a tonight's the night kind of thing. And Petter would give a speech, you know, trying to coach everybody how to get through this in a way. But ultimately, it might have been, uh, it might have been something that could have been a positive thing for some people. For some people, it's terrifying. And the reality of it was it's a really, really, really poor way to introduce somebody to that experience. Former patient Chris McKnight remembers one such outing during his trip to Mexico with Anawake. Most years they took us to a house of uh, ill repute, house of prostitution, whatever you want to call it. This story is still kind of a tough one to tell. So I lost my virginity in a Pachuca uh, Mexican whorehouse. I was so scared. This is summer 83. It's, it's an alley and these girls are outside. I, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm a virgin. I'm scared shitless. I'm, I, you know, and all these people are like, hey, come on, Chris, you got to go. In incredible amounts of peer pressure. Come on, you got to go in there and have sex with a woman. And, and it's just... God, it's just such a surreal and I, frightening situation. I really was scared, not because sex to me was a lot of baggage. Chris was another victim of sexual abuse at Anawake by the hands of a counselor. Chris says that during this trip to a brothel, his abuser had just been with the same woman he was being pressured to have sex with. So I, I had my first sexual experience with a woman, it's like my mind was so fucked up about sex at that moment in my life that the only safe woman I could have sex with was the woman who had just had sex with the guy who had molested me years before. There's a lot of baggage right there. A lot of pain, too. Girls, like, grab my hand. He's trying to push me. Someone else is, like, trying to push me through the door. And I... I wanted to scream, I wanted to cry, I wanted to run away. I was afraid, I was scared, I was shaking. I mean, it was consensual, it was legal in, in Mexico. No laws were broken, but there was a lot of heavy shit going on right there. And I remember getting out and running down and throwing up, and I didn't eat for a couple days. Still have issues with that situation, it's hard to make heads or tails of it. It's a really messed up situation that a teenager shouldn't have been put in. Here's former counselor Ron Doyle again. He says, after seeing the effect the Mexico trip had on one of his patients under his supervision, he saw a red flag. I think probably the, the real catalyst that led to, my, led to my resignation was I had a boy who was brought into one of my groups after returning from a trip to Mexico. He had been considered a troublemaker in his previous group, 
But after this trip to Mexico, he just went off the deep end. And so they put him in my group thinking that that might, might help and that I had been effective in helping kids get past problems like that. So I worked with this kid and, and he began to open up to me and to tell me about some of the things that had happened to him on that Mexico trip, which were just inexcusable. I mean, physical abuse that the other kids were used to help abuse him because he wasn't cooperating. This was the Apache Roundup. Basically, they put him in a circle of other kids and would ask him questions, and if he didn't answer properly, they'd wail on him, basically beat him to a pulp. Carl says that these so-called Apache Roundups, a racially insensitive term to say the least, were supposed to be another part of Petter's therapy, one that he was told to lead. There were probably a handful of times where I was actually physically involved with anybody. You know, one of the things that that uh, Petter would talk about were the Apache roundups. And we went through a couple of those. And that's where the group confronts an individual, and the idea is to be physical about it. Ron says that after hearing about the Mexico trip, he decided to try to do something to help the situation and make known the atrocities he had heard about. Well, of course, the stories about the, the trips to the prostitutes and, and that kind of stuff. So at that point, I realized that there was a really ugly underbelly to the program. You know, I thought it was a wonderful program that did a lot of good things for kids. But then I saw it ruining kids like this one. And so knowing that Dr. Putter was the one who was arranging all that stuff, I had no trust in him whatsoever. I wasn't sure what to do, so I wrote a letter to the board of directors thinking, you know, these are community people who don't really know what, what's going on here, uh, and they need to know. So I wrote a letter to the board of directors uh, outlining some of my concerns, and I was very careful not to say things that I couldn't back up, but, but just bringing attention to some things that, that I was concerned about. I assumed that that letter had gone to the board, and shortly thereafter, Dr. Petter came down to, to Carabell and convened a meeting of the top leadership here and said he had been appointed by the board to investigate my, my concerns and my claims. I don't remember the details, but I do remember that the other administrators all basically said no, they had heard nothing of any of this kind and everything was wonderful as far as they knew and that I'd probably fallen for some stories that the boys were making up. So Dr. Petter decided that my problem was that I was just naive and, and needed some more training and that I had shown good promise, but, but he wanted me to work as his assistant and move to Douglasville to work under him so that he could train me properly. I told him I wasn't interested in moving to Douglasville. He told me I didn't have a choice. I told him I always have a choice and my choice was to leave rather than to, to accept what he was offering. So that's when I left. That was in 1984, after four years here. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. 
knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After hearing about Ron's experience at Anawaki as a counselor in Carabell, we went to visit some of the old sites to remember what they were and what they had now become. So we are, we're at the marina right now. Well, it looked a lot different when we first started. I mean, there was really nothing much here except for the docks. And in fact, at the time, there were wood docks, not this concrete, nice stuff you see now. That's the hotel the boys built, this building the boys built, the building we're standing under the boys built. We were under the impression at the time that we were building a facility that was gonna be used for the program. As far as I know, it never was. Once it was finished, we didn't come back here anymore. We next went to see what had become of the Anawaki South Campus, formerly referred to as Landside. We are at the St. James Bay Golf Course, formerly Anawaki, walking around looking at some of the old buildings and what they are now. But it looks like they took the whole building down and just built it all on the same foundation. Okay, this was the... Uh, yeah, the, the lodge. This was the administration area. Oh, this is the courtyard. This is the, yeah, this is what we call the quad because of the four buildings. I, can, I can't believe I walked right past this. This looks just like the pictures uh, of the quad with the courtyard in, in the middle of the four buildings over here. Yeah, yeah. See that uh, tree right there? The my, big one? Yeah, my group planted it when it was a sapling that size. Wow. What kind of tree is it's that? It's a sycamore. Well, this was administration here. These buildings were where, were where the social workers were housed. Mm-hmm. Um, and was this all grass? Was this center here too? This was here, yeah. They laid these bricks. They laid these bricks. The boys laid these bricks? Yeah, that was a fountain. Wow. It's the same thing at, um, at the old site. Same kind of layout. Yeah, this looks just like it. I can't believe I walked past it. Didn't see this. What was formerly the quad was still in practically the same setup at St. James. Four small buildings built on what was once the four posts of the radar tower from Camp Gordon Johnston. I couldn't believe that I had been walking around trying to find some remnants of the old Anawaki, and it was right under my nose the whole time. The same buildings built by former patients of Anawaki are still in use by this now golf course and resort. One aspect of the Carabell campus I still had not been able to track down was the original motel referred to as Bayside. Ron said he could take me down there to show me what was left of it today. We drove down to a small beach off the side of the highway, a light rain coming down and me frantically trying to protect my microphone and recorder. This is where Bayside was. There were two strips here along here 
about four units on each side, four rooms on each side with a courtyard in the middle. And like I say, it had been a little tiny hotel. And, and then the kids, um, there was one group on one side and one group on the other side. They camped in the woods out that way. Now just, uh, I guess just to the right of that house, there was a trail that went back through the woods. You can tell how far it was to the campus from here. So it was a, it was a good 20 minute walk to get from here over to main campus. So these kids would wake up here, you know, six o'clock in the morning, get up and get ready, walk that trail to get to breakfast. Two houses built again with the, with the kids' labor. Uh, the first house here was Dr. Petter's house where he would stay when he was down here. And then the other house was the uh, Carabelle campus director's house. Now they've been sold and there's just, yeah, families living on them. We're walking off the side of US Highway 98 while you hear cars going by. And this just looks like this deserted beach here, really. All that was left of the once motel was some broken up slabs of concrete scattered across the sandy beach. A hurricane had left it in ruins a few years back. Across the street were two Mexican-style built houses, painted that all-familiar Anawaki beige, as it was known. Now you can see the hurricane kind of messed up the seawall there. Aha. But that's what's left of it. You can see where, the, where you had the picture of the boys putting down uh, sandbags along there. I went to see if Ron's wife and her friend had any memories of this place. Yeah, we can't Turn tell more the memories. Me. <laughs> what happened here, Stacy? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing and relevant it's, it's to what. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used to go floundering. Anawaki Bayside was now just concrete chunks of the once motel and broken oyster shells. Much like the rest of my trip to Caravelle, all I could find was pieces of what was the Anawaki South Campus, fragments of stories from those who experienced it, or who knew family or others involved. The site of the original motel, which I'd been looking for all week, I must have driven past a dozen times. A piece of Carabelle's history, sitting right in plain sight, yet still so hard to find. Anawaki would continue to expand past Florida. More land was being acquired in Mexico and even Canada. The next step in Petter's master plan to build an all-girls campus right in the state of Georgia. Next time on Camp Hell, Anawaki. The girls' campus was set back along a very winding gravel road. We would work from 8.30 or 9 until 11.30. Girls were getting heat exhaustion and heat stroke. We built an empire for a pedophile. That's a very difficult thing to think about. She shared with us that she had a marriage ceremony out on the beach and that they were a couple. I don't know, it changed her, but it didn't seem like in a good way. Camp Hell and Awakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's D, the number two, L.org. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott.
Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.